Everybody and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with Aubrey Loveless, and I'm Danielle. Thank you to our partners at Mignolaverse.com for promoting us with some great interviews. You can read a great interview with Danielle and another one with Aubrey that came out today. We also have a video interview up there as well with the three of us, so you should be able to check out all that content there. Oh boy, <laughs> what what do you have to say about that? I think that's great. Somebody uh, somebody thought in your interview picture that you look, resembled Danzig. I think that's super. <laughs> what do you think about Danzig? Yeah. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take He's that. He's pretty good. I like Danzig. Sure. No. Remember, remember when we all were wanting Danzig to be Wolverine back oh, in the 90s? Because he's short, stocky, and he has the, um, the sideburns. Right. Does it, I think Wizard Magazine started that. I don't rumor, remember right? that conversation, but yeah, that seems about right. That's yeah. fine. He, he still kind of looks like that, sure. but now he also looks older. That's what happens. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> when you age. But he's still like ripped. As a human. He's I still ripped, yeah. though. <laughs> I want to go to that alternate universe where he was Wolverine in, in a 90s X-Men movie. It probably would be terrible. It's funny is that Patrick Stewart was also brought up during that time, and that worked out pretty well. Oh, yeah, you're right. We are at episode 10, and I just really want to thank everyone who has been listening, following along with us on the social media thingers, and giving us feedback. This has been an awesome experience so far, so I want to thank all of you. And I also want to thank Aubrey and Danielle for your participation every Aww. week. Aww. Yeah, it's been thanks really good. Aww. It's been fun. Well, well, thanks for having us along. This has been a great, fun journey. Yeah. We've got some more reviews up. Um, reviews really help us boost the show and our page. So if you're enjoying what we've been doing, uh, drop us a line and give us a review on Facebook or iTunes. Thanks for the iTunes reviews, Jerry and Brian. It feels really good to know that you are enjoying this show enough to write us a few generous lines. And our good friend Case Lajerwai also left us a great review on Facebook. Case. Yeah, thanks Church of Sagan on Instagram for hashtagging us in a really cool picture showing off his Hellboy Super 7 figures and all his cool replicas from Skelton Crew. He's got the St. Dunstan key. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that one's awesome. like long been sold out, right. but yeah, it was cool to see that. Now getting on to some listener feedback. Jerry Turnbull was letting us know one of Robert E. Howard's Solomon Kane tales is called The Right Hand of Doom. And we've already talked about Robert E. Howard a couple times, his references to Lemuria as well as Gianni has done some illustrations for some of his work. Some feedback on Into the Silent Sea. There was a really awesome discussion. Case Lodger, I kind of started it yeah, off. He, yeah, he leaves yeah. a lot of really good comments. Um, on Urshigal. The guy's great. He said, I did find on the Goog that it's an existing super ancient deity standing for chaos. What I like about that is that usual religious creation stories start off like, First, there was nothing or mere chaos, and as a result of such a deity to chaos, any creation or life form would be like, bugger off, you don't belong, because I was here first. But to me, it seems the black goddess, famous-seeming statue or image, might not stand for young Hecate, the newcomer, but for Hecate's way older and much more powerful idol, being the one lady beyond creator, super black goddess of chaos, Urshigal. Yeah, I like that. And then about the Pale Lantern Lady, the Lady in Black on Into the Silent Sea, he said, I thought Hekka just means serpent. So if Emra means entity of power or some such, I guess she thought she was going to get chummy with some serpent god. Right. But she sounded awfully hazy, if not loopy, quite a bit. 
I don't think she was necessarily referring to Hecate, also a serpent. And if she meant to refer to the Black Goddess, then that would have to equate to Urshago more so than Hecate. Since I'm pretty sure Hecate was just an agent of Urshago as much as Rasputin, a pawn of Hecate. That's pretty insightful. Yeah, and it was a really cool comment thread. Jerry, Craig McKnight, Drew Campbell, and Mark Tweedell all yeah, chimed in. Yeah, they all in, jumped in there. And it was a really good discussion. And uh, I think you even chimed in there and you just said, I love this book I club. really, yeah. <laughs> it was really, it, it's really nice that's, to see. Because that's what it's all about, really, is just starting little conversations and dialogue about the material. And it's, it was fun. It's, you know, it's yeah. a book club. It's supposed to be nerdy. You're really supposed to get into it. And I really appreciate uh, all those guys. Yeah, and it was a fun read. Yeah. I enjoyed reading. Thanks, Case. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to get all into all of it now because it contains some spoilery information that we haven't got to yet. Yeah, that was one thing that I was like, I don't know about some of this, but right. it seems cool. Um, but I just really like seeing all the discussion going on. It will be really good to track all the Urshigal and Black Goddess references that we get so far. Totally. I did go back a little bit to see what we had discussed or what references had popped up. In Seed of Destruction number one, when Rasputin is summoning Hellboy, he is referencing the Ogdra Jihad, and he calls them Throne Bearers of Urshigal. Mm. In Seed of Destruction four, when Rasputin is using Liz's power to try and summon the Ogdra Jihad again, he refers to them as Throne Bearers of Urshigal, but continues, who is queen and lord over the great darkness between worlds. And then in Wake the Devil number five, when Hellboy is falling into the pit after being bitten by the giant Hecate Iron Maiden, he hears a voice from the pit and it says, Does the darkness have a tongue and a voice and a name for its calling? Am Nung Rahab, Un Agdru Rama, Un Urshigal. It is chaos that is speaking to you. Nice. Yeah, so I think uh, Case cool. might be on the right track yeah. that Urshigal is maybe the, the chaos. You know, and Rasputin always says, love the chaos. Oh, absolutely. Don't you hear the chaos calling or whatever, so. I had to refrain from getting into a whole thing about chaos. <laughs> I remember on that episode. Drew Campbell chimed in on Into the Silent Sea. He said he was trying to track down Platypus now. That was one of the references that I couldn't find anything to. And he also couldn't find anything. But what he thought was interesting was that um, people used to think the Fiji mermaid and stuff like that was real. Mm, right yeah but like an actual skin of a platypus like a like people thought that was fake like an actual (laughs) like like you know what i mean like an actual platypus like they thought that was a hoax i feel like that just sums up humanity right right yeah Yeah. i thought that was that was really interesting so maybe that's why that's in there although a platypus does sort of seem like fake news yeah up front (laughs) just on its on the surface anybody could have made that thing look like that exactly well that that was those were the claims like someone took a duck and a yeah whatever an otter exactly (laughs) and uh lays eggs yeah it has it's a mammal though (laughs) right it is it's also got poison yeah yeah is it venom or is it venomous or poisonous oh i don't remember it's venomous It's, it's definitely one of the two yeah, but, but it's definitely one or the other. <laughs> I think you're right, though. I think it is venom. Uh, yeah. But I mean, that is just one weird, no, it's, yeah, awesome animal. Super cool. Anyway, <laughs> Jen, you should have known we were going to go on a platypus. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love it. Jan Niklas Bersenkowicz said, and I said I said his name totally wrong last time on the last episode. I just, and then he commented that he liked how. <laughs> badly I, I we really it. do try and get your names right we're not you know what i mean we're not trying to be careless with that but he said about the into the sun and sea i like the mindset of the lady to be honest 
Knowing stuff is more important than crawling back in your hole, but she also forgot to be more critical and just blindly believed that she knew all the answers. Which is a nice detail that fits to the whole narrative and comes back to that whole knowledge power per se isn't bad, only if you use it to hurt others or don't check if it was safe. And he also said, I can't wait for Darkness Calls and Makoma. Makoma is the shit, yo. Yeah. yeah and it is. We're going to... Oh, we're yeah. about to see that right now. We'll, we'll get to that one in, in just a little bit. We also talked about Gustav Dory's engravings inspiring Gianni's Woman in Black. Ross Radke on Twitter said to check out Dory's engravings in Dante's Divine Comedy. And he shared some really cool images of those Dory engravings on our Twitter. So thank you for that. Some feedback on The Crooked Man. Our good pal Case again on Corbin's The Crooked Man. I think I read somewhere that Mr. Mike writes a story with the artist in mind and that he thinks The Crooked Man turned out a favorite, which sounds like artists are made or inspired to shine at what they do best. I believe Mr. Mike also said he considers Corbin a legend. I also loved Miss Danielle's deep objections to how some stuff was made to sound. I think that both the beauty and ugliness of folklore and other superstitions or beliefs are getting portrayed in the pages of Hellboy. A churchly nun or priest or Templar is going to talk considerably of their own intentions, which may or may not have been atrocities in the eyes of others. And the crooked man seems to take place on the soil where stuff is harsh and even superstitions are cutthroat, believe it or die. Yet also kind of natural, land of the law-like. Corbin does the kind of ambiguous, batshit, evil, ghastly, horror, painful controversy burst so elegantly. That's good comics, folks. I agree with all of that. <laughs> That's pretty Absolutely. Awesome. Very insightful. Jan Niklas also on The Crooked Man. He says that he loved it because I think it's a very deep story about power and choice. But yeah, the priest is a jerk and the natives in the mine are icky. Still a powerful <laughs> yeah. story. And I like Tom and Hellboy's dynamic and The Crooked Man as a villain. The ending, though, was a bit mean-spirited, in my opinion, including the I'm a witch part. Yeah. Those mountain people are not nice. <laughs> Ryan Bolton said, another fantastic episode. Danielle, I greatly appreciated your rant on the representation of witches. Nathaniel Green nice. also commented on that. He said Danielle made some good points about witches in the episode. Witches have long been pagans who have been persecuted by Christians for thousands of years, and the trope of the Christians being outnumbered and fighting through is a well-worn one. Thanks for speaking up, guys. Very yeah. cool. And Mark Tweedo also chimed in on that. He said, I agree that witches are more than just evil in the Hellboy universe. When you guys get to 1947, there's an interesting conversation in the final issue about shamans and the nature of God. It certainly affected the way I read The Preacher in The Crooked Man. Yeah, so we'll, have to, we'll have to come back to that when we get yeah. to that 1947 storyline. Very cool. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> Some feedback on the Hydra and the Lion. Lassa Jurgensen, who I said his name wrong last week as well. Um, he said that it does count as a boom. Remember that one boom that we were, I was in debate over. And I you, was you... <laughs> fully, I felt firmly on the side of that it was a boom. And Kevin Alfred said, Aubrey's minor, favorite minor character, the little girl, the little Hercules girl is probably the most adorable thing in all <laughs> comics. Some feedback on the Troll Witch. We had a lot of good feedback on this discussion. Nathaniel Green said, I took the comments by the witch at the end of The Troll Witch about no blood being spilled as a comment on Hellboy's violent means of solution and how he wars with things that look like him. This has puzzled previous characters before, like Hecate. Jan Nikla said, The Troll Witch, though, is one of the best Hellboy stories ever and maybe Mike's best take on the whole He Who Fights Monsters theme ever. Because, like the witch, Hellboy 
may fight monsters out of hate for not being human, he's the troll witch, but there are still people who love and care about him. Maybe he would have turned out like her without the Hand of Doom forcing him to be this destroyer of all old creatures on the world. But it says a lot about him that he looks kind of sad that he never gets to fight the trolls. This could count as another moment of the troll witch helping someone so they don't suffer her pain. At least Hellboy doesn't get beat up this time. I like this idea. Funny though, before this I thought of the witch as more of a sad character which hid from the world for her otherness because she's all cynical about humans being racist and stuff. Could be both. He also said the bad flower could have been a symbol of balance. For something good, there has to exist something bad, because magic, and because otherwise people would get cocky. Mm. (laughs) I keep coming back to the idea that it was something to do with the individual practitioner's brand of magic. Mm. Like maybe that, you know, that could have been very, very well been the first witch's outlook when the little tr- and when the little troll girl, it came time for her to be like, hey, I'm going to do the thing with the flowers. She was like, no, actually, I don't think there needs to be any bad troll flowers. Right, right. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's very interesting, though. It's, it's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoy that one a lot. Some feedback on the Vampire of Prague. Jerry Turnbull shared some awesome pictures of the Lautke marionette shop, which is a real place, and the Vampire of Prague puppet. That was very cool. That Mignola has on his bookshelf. Yeah, I went ahead and shared that online. That was cool. Kevin Alford said they were just as creepy, if not more, than he imagined. Nathaniel Green said, I think the statue from the Vampire of Prague was reused as the schedule cover at San Diego Comic-Con. And so the statue he's referring to is one of the giants from the Gates of Giants in front of Prague Castle. And this is the one holding the sword. Um, It's on the cover of the San Diego Comic-Con 2018 convention cover, which just passed and celebrated 25 years of Hellboy. And thank you, Craig McKnight, for snagging me a copy of that. He got me, yeah. he sent me over one of those. Nice. Drew Campbell said, great episode as usual. I got to take this opportunity to plug P. Craig Russell's work. He's another one of my favorites. I highly recommend his graphic novel adaptation of Wagner's Ring of Nibelung Opera Cycle, which I consider to be his masterpiece. But if you want something a little less daunting to get into, his adaptation of Neil Gaiman's short story, Murder Mysteries is also fantastic. I also loved the Dark Horse Book of Hauntings, Ghosts, Monsters, and Witchcraft. There are some really good stories in addition to the Hellboy ones, and each one has a classic horror short story with illustrations by Gary Gianni. So those are really cool. I don't have those, but I, I'd love to go and, and dig all those up. I wouldn't mind seeing the Wagner one because uh, isn't, that, um, isn't that what influenced uh, Tolkien on Lord of the Rings as well? Oh, I don't know. I, think I don't know so. that, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's a direct influence but i mean he definitely picked up something from that i believe or i could be wrong but i think i'm right we had a, an actual email come in we, i think oh, we had really? our first wow. email come in from paul hi folks thank you so much for doing a hellboy podcast i'm really enjoying your show it's great to hear your enthusiasm i was listening to your discussion on the vampire of Prague story and i thought you might like to hear about a loosely related legend from liverpool in england where i used to live yeah he also says I love hearing you all butcher British and Irish names and places. I live in a tiny village called, and I looked so I tried to look this up like I get it right. (laughs) I live in a tiny village called Gardacharn. Uh, that's probably not right. Get your mouth around that one. So I guess you can can let me know. Well, it doesn't, phonetically, it just looks like Gart O'Charn. But when I looked it up online, it says Gardacharn. Yeah, that's probably a different language completely okay yeah well he says anyway 
I had a friend who studied Gaelic for a while, and he, he mm. would be so frustrated after every <laughs> class. So Paul goes on, In Liverpool, there is a pyramid in a graveyard said to contain the remains of William Mackenzie, a wealthy engineer and, a, and gambler. He is said to have wagered his soul in a game of poker with the devil. The deal was that the devil could only collect his soul once he was dead and buried. Needless to say, the devil won the hand and Mackenzie's soul was left to be collected upon his death. Mackenzie has apparently had the last laugh, however, as he left strict instructions with his family that he never be buried. Instead, he is said to be entombed in the pyramid above ground, sat upright at a poker table with a royal flush arrayed in the table in front of him. Nice. That <laughs> yeah. is that is new levels of petty. And he sent uh, awesome. he sent a picture in the email of this pyramid where I really? guess that this guy is sitting upright oh, or whatever. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so that's really cool. Thanks Paul. Cool. And I hope that I uh, satisfied your need to hear us butcher the the, the names of all these your These are these are such beautiful <laughs> wonderful languages and we're just ruining them <laughs> by being americans i'm trying and texans <laughs> yes for they that go down to the sea in ships we didn't really get any feedback on this story other than kevin alford saying that he was a little disappointed that we didn't take the opportunity to mention some sea shanties when we were <laughs> oh. talking about the pirates uh, but going along with that, Drew Campbell sent me a link to a card game that looks really cool. It's called Adrift, and it utilizes sea shanties as part of the game. Hey. Oh, so cool. it actually looks really cool. I- I'd like to check that out. Some feedback on Dr. Carp's experiment. Kevin Alford said, wonderful episode as always. Dr. Carp's experiment might be my personal favorite short story in the Mignolaverse. Huh. There is so much packed into that short bit, especially characterization. Thanks so much for the feedback, everybody. Um, I, I really enjoy hearing what everyone's thoughts are on, on everything that we're discussing and everything that we're sharing on social media. So keep all that coming in. You're going to timestamp that, right? I have and been. I, and now. And now. <laughs> um, so now we're going to talk about The Ghoul. The Ghoul, or Reflections on Death and the Poetry of Worms, was written and illustrated by Mignola with colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. This story was first published as part of the anthology The Dark Horse Book of the Dead in June 2005, and it was later reprinted in the Hellboy 20th Anniversary Sampler. We open on London in 1992, and we zoom into the window of a house. There is some dialogue going on between a man and a skeleton in armor with a crown. So this is from Act 1, Scene 5 of Hamlet. Basically, the skeleton tells Hamlet that he's the ghost of his father, doomed to walk the earth at night and trapped in the fires of purgatory during the day until he's done penance for his past sins. This is a weird little puppet show. Yeah. It's cute. And if I weren't forbidden to tell you secrets of purgatory, I could tell you some crazy stuff. So the next line, uh, when he says, I could uh, tale unfold, the next line is the, in the play is... I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood. Yeah, and we reveal, like, it's on TV, right? This woman is watching all this this Hamlet scene on TV. We get a Mignola version of Rodan's The Thinker on top of the TV as well. And there's a knock at her door. And we meet Pauline, Pauline Raskin. Pauline Raskin from the BPRD. I shouldn't say we Hold meet her, right? No, yeah. She's Hold back. I think I would enjoy watching a Hamlet play. Yeah. Uh, like, out of puppets. I, I like this little skeleton guy. He's cool. Especially if they were like uh, Mignola's design. That yeah. Would be super yeah. Awesome. Oh, yeah, for sure. We should kickstart that. <laughs> Yeah, and Pauline Raskin, we're we're kind of meeting her by name, but we kind of already met her I'm last week. I'm glad to see her again. Yeah. I'm excited. 
she was in Dr. Karp's experiment with Hellboy. And she shows her badge to the woman. And one thing I was noticing about the badge is um, it looks like Hellboy's badge in Almost Colossus. Remember when he showed his yeah. badge to those guys that they said, mm-hmm. hey, you damn guys. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. We actually had a Dear Earthling on Podbean said, hey, you damn guys is the best comic book line of it's all great. time. He really liked our discussion on that. But anyway, Hellboy, um, he shows his badge and it looks similar to Pauline's. When we saw Liz's badge in Seat of Destruction, it looked like the BPRD logo. Right. But that was, I think maybe that just, it was just for stylistic reasons. Yeah, or I think that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Agent Raskin asks the woman if her husband is home. The woman says that he's working late. Agent Raskin shows the woman some photographs, and we learn the man in the photographs is her husband, Edward. I cannot imagine what he's doing. Is it a picnic? The woman asks. Yeah. Something like that, says Agent Raskin. <laughs> Cross. Ma'am, are you sure your husband is working tonight? Asks Raskin. Agent Raskin is like if Agent Scully wore Lara Croft glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I like her. We cut to Hammersmith Cemetery. This cemetery is in the London borough of Hammersmith and Fulham, and which we know by now Mignola does an awesome job with drawing these cemeteries. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we meet this guy. What do you think about this, this guy? Damn guy. <laughs> well, he, we already know he's having picnics in cemeteries. Uh, right. So, <laughs> yeah. So this character, he recites that. Uh, he recites lines from Robert Blair's The Grave. The grave dread thing, men shiver when thou art named. Nature appalled, shakes off her wanted firmness. The Grave is a blank verse poem published in 1743. It is the work for which Blair is primarily renowned. The poem, 767 lines long, is an exemplar of what became known as the School of Graveyard Poetry. And Hellboy thinks it's really pretty. And well, we... <laughs> this this in, this is a really cool Hellboy intro right here. Yeah. I gotta stop and talk about how this this is a really cool Hellboy intro. It's kind of it kind of reminds me of Batman. Oh yeah, the way yeah. that Batman would appear. It just is a very Batman moment. And just like inserting that little line in there too, like very pretty, Mister Stokes or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah. But he's very. But I mean, he's it's Batman with a very Hellboy twist, like. I'm going to beat the crap out of you. Yeah. (laughs) And we learned the man's full name is Edward Stokes. Edward Stokes might be a reference to Edward Stiles Stokes, who was the owner of a New York oil refinery, who in 1872 was shot and killed by his business partner and love rival, James Fisk. Stokes was tried three times and found guilty of manslaughter in the third degree, serving four years in prison. I don't know if that's, that's who it's a reference to, but that's what I found for that name. Interesting. Down, oh boy. Then, down, well, down here, also at the end of the page, I, you know, Mignola, we have always talk about his mood shots yeah. and all of that. And like this just very – the way that he will pause a moment in time, not only does it not detract from the pacing, it adds to the pacing, the timing, the feel of a page, and it just really establishes that mood. Like the way that – we get a real vignette into Mignola's creative mind where the the moment just seems to – he focuses on this one thing and it adds so much to the narrative yeah and that's just something that comes up time and time again in like every story that he illustrates and i always really love those those little moments those little you know those little shots those little mood shots of like a bird or all these it's like dinner knives dinner forks yeah i was looking at that it's a it really sets the scene yeah it's a crowbar ice pick Scissors, knife, and fork are what I could find in there. And it's very cold, too. The colorist yeah. puts his own thing in there, and it's very, yeah. Almost looks like there's like a, a salt shaker. 
What? Oh wow! But it, but it could just be the handle, the end handle of a tool. <laughs> right? Huh? Put a little spice oh, on there. Stokes drops his suitcase, and he runs from Hellboy. And Hellboy recounts all the history that they have been tracking of Stokes. Hellboy mentions that Stokes has been in Liverpool, Bradford, Sheffield, Munich, and Prague, which are in England, Germany, and the Czech Republic. Hellboy also mentions that they have tracked him back to 36. And Hellboy asks, how old are you, Ed? 100? 200? You look pretty damn good for your age. Must be your diet. And they fight, right? Hellboy calls him a sick piece of crap, and he punches him, and we get more lines from Blair's The Grave. Hellboy tells Stokes that he's worse than a cannibal, and that's saying something. Stokes recites lines from Wharton's The Pleasures of Melancholy. This poem was published in 1757 when Wharton was only 17 years old. The poem contributed not only to the Graveyard School of Poetry, but also to the so-called Cult of Melancholy that, that characterized so much late 18th century and early 19th century verse. Hellboy doesn't seem to like Wharton because he just keeps saying, quit that. We get Right Hand of Doom, boom, number 12. Stokes goes back to Blair's The Grave, and Hellboy just keeps on beating him. And as he does, we cut back to these awesome kind of graveyard shots throughout that. Yeah, there's a little line down here where he says, I've never yet brought one of you guys in alive. Right, yeah. That's very interesting. And on the the very next page, just real quick, I want to just mention how, again, how so well-paced, so perfectly, I don't know, storyboarded. Like, you see the first panel and then the next two just give this perfect beat. It feels cold. Like, you can feel the wind. It's that creepy kind of autumn into winter feel. You can almost smell the cold and the action here is so well rendered the movement of it it's it's so fucking cool it just really struck me the way he's just falling back into the thing it's it's so the the movement is so real and it's very um it's very striking page it's a really perfect page just to add i was thinking about i was thinking about this the other day and um just thinking about how his action just kind of flows and how like when you get to these things there's not we've talked about these before some of the level of detail goes down and all that and I believe it's really because, like, if you were to, like, watch it as a movie, you, the, your detail would go down. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's really kind of nice to see. And then, and it just, like you were saying, everything just flows from yeah. one scene to the next. And he picks, like, the right moment to show you what you need to see to get totally. all the information that you need yeah. to keep his the decisions. story moving forward. His yeah. decisions for what he shows you and what he doesn't show you exactly are all working together, not against each other. And that's really, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's really, you know, his use of negative space and his use of just, like, you know, the, the statue's eyes is not in frame. Like, what are you really focusing on? Like, yeah. it yeah. gives you an insight into what he's focusing on. And that's something, like, you can you can feel the wind, you can feel the weight of this guy cracking through this tomb you can you can see and feel and hear all of it and and it's so stylistic so that's just very remarkable i thought so yeah 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 and this is a great scene where stokes he says all nature's hushed silence and in sleep no being wakes but me and he kind of falls backwards through the tomb hellboy looks down into the crypt stokes has fallen on a coffin and he continues reciting lines from pleasures of melancholy and Hellboy just looks on, and the ghoul says, Hamlet. And we cut back to this television program in Miss Stokes' house. This is Act 4, Scene 3 of Hamlet. Here, Hamlet extends a metaphor to remind Claudius that it is every man's ultimate fate to die, and that death is the great equalizer. And we found ourselves for maggots, 
Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service, two dishes but one table. That's the end. A man may fish with a worm that hath eat of the king, and eat of the fish that hath fed of the worm. What dost thou mean? Nothing. And it just kind of cuts to Stokes. I guess he was eaten by all the maggots when he fell down there, right? Is that what's happening? I... That's kind of what I was yeah. gathering. Yeah. And so he's just left as, as bones there. Back to the play, Claudius asks again, where is Polonius? In heaven, send thither to see your messenger, find him not there. Well, I like this. Uh, I'm showing you how a king will go through the guts of a beggar. Is an interesting line from that um, that particular yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that was cool. And this, and this panel right here, such a cool shot with the moon, the leaves, and the statue. The composition is perfect in this panel with Hellboy in it. Such good composition. Oh, yeah, no, I that really could be like a print. I mean, yeah. that's, you know. Beautiful shot of Hellboy. And I love this um, rest in peace, the end, also at the bottom. Sure. And we get um, Mignola cites the, the two poems that the, the ghoul recites. I love his, the television is apparently a puppet show. <laughs> <laughs> cool, thanks, man. I would love to see that, yeah. He's like, yeah, it's a puppet. Some trivia on the ghoul. Mignola says that this is the oddest Hellboy story he's ever told. And it's not too high on readers' lists of favorites. I like it. It was inspired by Hamlet and Mignola's love of old cemeteries. Mignola said he is indebted to two tombstones that he saw in California and Prague and The Loved Dead, a C.M. Eddy short story written in collaboration with Lovecraft that made an impression on him as a kid. Mignola says he drew the story first and then looked for the poems. It was tough. Thank you, Internet, and my long-suffering wife. <laughs> and he also warns readers that it was fun, and he might like to do something like it again. Wait, wait. So you mean Mike Mignola likes to draw cemeteries? <laughs> Is that what you're telling yeah. me? Yeah. Okay. Um, that was not apparent. And what's interesting... I had no idea. Yeah. What, what's interesting also is uh, I already have some reader feedback on this, kind of. <laughs> Mark Tweedo, he was talking about the Troll Witch, and he says, I always read it with the ghoul. Yeah. Even though the former is set in 1963 and the latter in 1992, because they're so beautifully thematically linked by that question of what it means to be a monster that hunts monsters. I agree. Yeah, I so, agree yeah, with I that. Like that. Yes. Um, I, I want to add my own little note on this. Um, the other day when I was trying to read this, the first time I, I was a little drunk. Cause, <laughs> okay. And uh, trying to read Shakespeare type lyrics when you're drunk okay. is just not really. The, I was like. I had to put it down. I was like, I'm going to get back to this, this in the morning. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I looked up these poems, The Grave and Pleasures of Melancholy, and they're really long, really. <laughs> I, I was trying to read. I, I wanted to kind of get a synopsis of like, this poem's about this and this poem's about that. And I could not. I could just. People get degrees in that. I, I, I couldn't do it. It was too People late. Get, like, and I had too much other stuff, stuff like to do. Yeah, I, really I do. didn't have time to sit there and read like a 300 something line poem. I mean, you might as well write a thesis. <laughs> what if you could find somebody on like YouTube just like reciting yeah, sure. the poem? Probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. All right. Next, we're going to talk about In the Chapel of Moloch. In the Chapel of Moloch was published in October of 2008 as a one-issue story. Like this little candle. Does anybody else have that in their version? Oh yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, that's it. We're looking at the omnibus version. Okay. I um I gotta say that I found this story to be super creepy, but also super awesome. Yeah, I really yeah. like this one. Oh, I really like this one a lot yeah. too. Story the artist art angle is really cool. Yeah. As a conduit or whatever, mm -hmm. I dig that. The the very first panel, such a fucking 
Cool. It opens up on these beautiful sloping rooftops in a southern Portugal. Just stunning composition. Again, like the line work and the blast. But the colors, too. I mean, they're perfect. I go on about the colorists all the time. But, I, you know, I can't help it. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. No. And uh, just real quick, uh, story and art by Mignola. Colors by Dave Stewart and yeah. letters by Clem Robbins, obviously. That's the that's the dream team right there for us yeah. right now. Yep. We're in the middle of another mystery. They had to call in our plucky paranormal investigators <laughs> from the BPRD. Let's... Let's see what's what's the deal here. Yeah. And Hellboy, he talks to a local who tells him that the area is perfect, isolated, quiet, and cheap. But I guess not really, or you wouldn't have called the BPRD, says Hellboy. The man tells Hellboy that when he rented the house, the chapel was thrown in for free. That should have told you something right there, says Hellboy. Wait, but he's not a local, though, is he? Uh, oh, well, I guess not. He travels back and forth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He rented it. Yeah. You're he's right. A, you're he's right. He's a patron guy. Yeah, he's like the guy that set up the artist. Yeah. yeah. He's working with an artist named Jerry, and Jerry fell in love with the place. And he was to make some pieces for the Connie Hoffman Gallery on Madison Avenue. I couldn't find a Connie Hoffman Gallery, but there was an actress named Connie Hoffman who was in Starsky and Hutch. Okay. I don't know if that has anything uh, to do with that. Maybe it just shows Magnolia's love for Starsky and Hutch. There you go. <laughs> Hellboy opens the chapel, and the man lights a candle. Hellboy asks why no lights. The man says Jerry wanted to see if he could paint by candlelight. I like this uh, image of the chapel right here. I mean, it looks like it even has like bullet holes in it. And oh, stuff. yeah, yeah. It made me think, was it something in, like ruins left over from like World War One or World War II or something right. like that? Yeah. Know? Right. Hellboy asks, how did it work out? Good while I was here, says the man. He tells Hellboy that he went back to New York for three months and had to come back because Jerry wasn't answering any of his calls. Oh, and I like this where he lights the candle, the little Cree and the scritch, yeah, yeah. and I, I love all that stuff, the little sound effects. When he got back, Jerry was a wreck that doesn't eat or sleep. When he does, he doesn't make any sense. Jerry mostly sleeps, but at night he works. Also at night, the man cannot open the doors, even though there are no locks. And I like um, this shot of kind of like Jerry throwing himself around the room, like this tortured artist, like just like mm-hmm. sprawled out on the floor. And I like all his little sketches, too, in the background, um, the little stuff that he has up on the wall. Oh, yeah. I love I love all this art talk that we get into. I love that Hellboy is an art nerd. Yeah. Um, I dig that. I, I totally agree. When he said it, remind, you, he's ripping off... Uh, he just goes, he's ripping off Goya. Like, I was just, just like, very... I, I went back and looked at this. I was like, oh, my God, it is ripping off it's Goya. Just a very, it's a very Hellboy, very matter-of-fact kind of thing and I, I think it's very appropriate that he's an art nerd i think that's great oh but then the guy's all like but no he's doing this yeah and that. he's trying to justify right. it through all yeah. this that's awesome art yeah curators man so they, they they look at all of jerry's paintings and yeah hellboy says that he's ripping off goya francisco goya was a spanish romantic painter and printmaker he is considered the most important spanish artist of the late 18th and early 19th centuries and throughout his long career was a commentator and chronicler of the era Immensely successful in his lifetime, Goya is often referred to as both the last of the old masters and the first of the moderns. Also, in this little exchange between Hellboy and uh, the dealer, it made me wonder if somebody was like, you know, this is like some sly like dig, like somebody was trying to say that his artwork is ripping off somebody yeah, else's it, and this is his answer to it. Yeah, you know. and it, it makes me wonder if, <laughs> if, an, if an artist is so important and influential and whatever uh, changed the the dynamic of the paradigms of art forever. Like, can you really rip them off at that point? Or wouldn't they be so influential that they would be inescapable? 
Right, right. Oh, I, I agree with you. Like, there. what yeah. are you talking? You know, it's art is a conversation. It's not anyway. I won't get into this. But, I mean, I guess <laughs> I'm you, not going to get into this. Well, you, there could be the argument to say that there is the difference between ripping off and being inspired by. But right. then again, that's also a um, right. Unless you're literally just copying. That's what I'm saying. Right. Like yeah. Mignola, Mike Mignola has developed his own style. He's yeah. he's he's part of the conversation. Right. When you're part of a conversation, you know, when you're learning skills, you, you obviously learn to mimic things before you can do your own thing. Like when babies learn how to walk, yeah. they don't just know how to walk. They have right. to hold on to a table, you know, the coffee table or whatever. So it's like, I don't know. I don't want to get into that whole thing, I guess. I'm sorry. But but it's it's funny that that later in the story, the artist is like, no, nah, I'm just ripping off. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> It's, that was never going to work. Yeah, so, um, but his friend here tries to say that he would have made Goya relevant again and all this Whatever. kind of stuff. Oh, man. And Hellboy just goes, if yeah. you say so. Yeah, the art the art curator thing is hilarious because, yeah, those yeah. people are all talk. It's great. But when Hellboy says, if you say so, the one that he's looking at resembles Goya's Witch's Sabbath. Mm. I like this mood shot of the brushes. Someday I'm oh, gonna, yeah, someday yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. collect all these little mood shots into like this one big image I think would be really neat to look at like a collage of mood, yeah mood like, shots. A, like a collage of these little shots the man says that jerry would have been the poster boy for new gothic and art but he must have stopped painting as soon as the man left for new york so where's the oh hellboy says as the man points <laughs> off panel it's a great reveal crap and we reveal this giant statue of what looks like a horned demon with wings. Absolutely preposterous yeah. sculpture. I love it. Also, it's in the middle of the age. It's just yeah. like, oh, I didn't notice this thing yeah. sitting here. It's great. Jerry ordered the clay, and the man says that Jerry had never sculpted before and that he's known him a long time. Huh. That's not That's good. not good. Yeah. <laughs> and I love these. There's almost like a reaction shot from this Goya ripoff where these like, these people are like they look in despair and then we also see the crates of the clay i like those little mood shots there it's very yeah he really builds this yeah. narrative with this ominous no one's saying anything there's no wasted pages it's not yeah. a whole bunch of fucking exposition crammed into your face it's just two very simple shots and you're like oh this is bad he builds tension in such a effortless way and in a very efficient way right yeah the man doesn't know what the sculpture is supposed to be Jerry doesn't talk anymore, but when Hellboy presses him, he says, well, when I heard him mumble something in his sleep, Moloch, and then we cut to this goat head, just like you were saying, the reaction shot, um, that little sketch on the wall. Oh, Hellboy says. Poor Hellboy. You know what it is, asks the man. Um, So Moloch is a biblical name of a Canaanite god associated with child sacrifice. Hellboy, Hellboy references the abomination of the children of Ammon. This is a reference to the Bible, 1 Kings eleven seven, And he also talks about the Knights of St. Hagen and Hagen Douglas. And I think these are Mignola creations, but they are probably based on the Knights of St. Thomas, who did fight at the Fall of Acre, which took place in 1291. It is considered one of the most important battles of the period. When Acre fell, the Crusaders lost their major stronghold of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. And Hellboy explains how children were sacrificed to Moloch, and he finds a symbol on the wall in the chapel. I love how he comes across that, too, holding this chunky candle. Yeah. Holding it up to the thing, and you see it in greater detail. And Yeah. I love the way like, he draws. Ah. Yeah. He's just holding. He's straight holding a fucking candle. Is he, like, <laughs> fireproof? Can, does he not? Is he not as susceptible to heat? Yeah. Well, we've talked about that. In the movie, yeah. he's fire. In the movie, right. they say he's fireproof, but... 
they never really say it in the comic, but we've seen him get burned a bunch of yeah. times, and he seems yeah. to not be hurt by it. Well, so maybe, maybe it's not. kind of like an unspoken thing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he's he it's, he probably isn't thrilled about it, but I guess it's not something that bothers him quite as much as it right. would bother you or I. Hellboy explains that the symbol is for the Knights of St. Hagen, who were fanatics and secret police for the church of that time that went after witches and heretics. Mm-hmm. Hellboy says that if the Knights of St. Hagen put their symbol there, something bad was going on here, but they stopped it. A lot of times, the bad stuff doesn't go away completely. It gets stuck in a place. And we get a really cool flashback here of like, you know, all that stuff going down. Yeah. We see the child, I guess, going to be sacrificed. And then we see, like, um, you know, I guess they set the place on fire or something. Hellboy takes a palette knife from Jerry's tools and stabs at the statue. And blood comes out. And I like the little stab yeah. also. And again, he says, that's not good. Uh. You said he wanders in here like a zombie, Hellboy asks. And they craft a plan to hide and wait for Jerry inside the chapel to see what's going on. These colors, this color. I mean, there's a there's a reason he wins those Eisner awards. Yeah, oh, yeah. for sure. Every year in a row. We get some great shots of the city of the village in Portugal and a little more dialogue. I like the little whenever Clem Robbins does that little tiny dialogue yeah. as they're whispering, and I just love them whispering to each other. Uh, the man in Hellboy, Hellboy in just this. keeps <laughs> telling him to be quiet. <laughs> a candle comes on. And Jerry approaches the Moloch, and the mood and pacing really kind of ramp things up. Yeah. Jerry says Moloch. There's this cool, creepy shot of uh, Jerry, the artist, wandering through these blank canvases and all these little candles, and it's just very... Yeah. I also like how the color of the um, candles, I guess that self-light, had that kind of eerie green light. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas like when the candles they lit with a match had that more warm yellow orangey light. Yeah, it's all got this eerie green tone to it for sure, You're absolutely right about that. Colors are fantastic. Yeah, that that creepy panel where he just says Moloch. It's very... Yeah, and there's like the... I guess those those little lights around him are from the candles. I I don't know. I just... It's very... Yeah. That's the thing about this art style is it's so representative of the the overall it's he's just telling a story and and he can put these little they're just little shapes but they they tell you so much yeah. about what's going they, yeah you get the sense that they're it's candlelight you know i also kind of like this one panel where cowboy is hiding behind the canvas just looking over at the guy yeah, <laughs> yeah i do like that he's kind of peeking over i like that yeah the man whispers what's he doing he just and hellboy goes shh watch that hole and we see this little goblin thing climb out of the hole and it kind of like jumps on the guy's back. This is such a creepy, and I love the little word bubble. Like with nothing with, in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really great. And Hellboy's kind of reaching He's already into reaching his, for something. Yeah. yeah. These three panels where the little goblin is kind of, I guess, um, moving this artist to sculpt, you know, he put where he just. The first panel, he puts his hands in. The second panel, he starts to move his yeah. hands. The third panel, he's really... You can see the hands are really working at forming something. Yeah. It really honestly looks like he's sculpting that. And it's just so... Yeah, really dynamic stuff. I like it. Hellboy turns to the man. See this? It's a silver button from the coat Bishop Zrini was wearing when he fought the Carpathian goat. I he did what? <laughs> I, li- I, li- I like that That's little comedy. Like the, like... <laughs> I love this little silver button. Yeah, but he, uh, I like the man. He's like, he did what? Asked the, and uh, Hellboy just like turns around. I love that little 
those little scenes just make it feel so real, and the yeah. pacing's just real. You've uh, got comedic. this button, do you not? I do. I do have the the silver button. Like button. Uh, it's pretty heavy too like uh, for, to to throw across like that. And Hellboy, he approaches the demon. And he flings the button, and I love the the <laughs> little fling, the and then you kind of see out. it chink chink in the, in the it kind of rattles around in the hole before going in hole there. Hole in one, yeah, hole in one, baby. Uh, the whole thing from when he explains like what the button is, the guy's like, "What?" And it, then wait, he goes, what now? And he's like, "Hey, you!" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can see that really. It's really good. The, you know, the, if you saw that in a movie, you would yeah. just like fall over. It laughing. would all play out in about three seconds. It's yeah. hysterical. Yeah. So I believe the uh, Bishop Zrini and the Carpathian Goat are Mignola creations. I couldn't find any reference to them outside of Hellboy, but popular folk tradition in Europe associated Satan with imagery of goats. A common superstition in the Middle Ages was that goats whispered lewd sentences in the ears of saints. (laughs) Isn't it like the Christian depiction of goats, wasn't that also because they were trying to... um play on the whole like horn god of the um yeah. ancient religions well yeah there's a there's a whole thing where um there's you know the the horned the horned one and all that's mm-hmm. it's 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 representative of nature and and your connection with nature and all that oh, sort yeah. of stuff so they mm-hmm. were like all this imagery is now bad uh, so yeah, we're gonna go okay. ahead and slander it and make sure that you associate it with horrible things only and anyone's seen uh, associating themselves with this imagery is going to be branded as a fucking heretic, heretic, and a and, yeah, you know, and exactly. So that's it, they yeah. just t- they took the whole thing and turned it around Would, to like, you know, because it's also interesting because the Bible never describes uh satan looking like that he's always described as somebody looking pretty slick and somebody that you know you would like oh hey that looks like like on the level yeah he's he's like an angel yeah i don't even yeah but yeah exactly and so that's that's just another uh that's another example of like um what do you call it the fucking uh thing where you're you're telling people a thing but it's not real (laughs) <laughs> propaganda oh, okay. it's you know it's just another example of the yeah, propaganda and anyway yeah but yeah thank you mm-hmm. for bringing that jerry says the man you haven't gone crazy have you can you talk and he just says i don't know what i'm doing yeah i like that part Poor where jerry he's just like i don't know what i'm doing Poor Jerry. and hellboy is still fighting the goblin he's like come here i need that button back oh. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's a very goofy kind of, like, uh, very comedy relief thing. He's, like, scrambling after this goblin. It's very, yeah, it's kind of a goofy moment in the middle of this very dark and horrific story. Yeah, and so while this is going on, Hellboy hears this rumbling sound. Well, you knew that was going to happen. I like when he turns his head, this little, like, head turn Yeah. on, on this bottom panel. You're a big bastard. Let's see what you've got as Hellboy sizes up the Moloch come alive. No, don't do it, Jerry yells out. The paintings aren't working. I'm just ripping off Goya. <laughs> yeah, that's a good little callback. I like this uh, where the the statue's hand is coming for Hellboy, and he just goes, oh, crap. Like, you can really feel the weight oh, of that. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. You know, like, he's, he's enveloped in shadow. All of a sudden, you just see his eyes. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, and he also shows us what a horrible shot he is, too, as, as he shoots. Yeah. Uh, he kind of shoots it off to the side. And I love how the statue is kind of like coming apart. It's because it's made out of clay, yeah. so it's kind of coming apart too as they fight. Hellboy gets beaten pretty good. All right, he says, I've had about enough of that. And we get right hand of doom, boom, number 12. And Hellboy actually says boom as he does it, cracking the head of the clay sculpture. 
Well, how many times is uh, this on the right hand of Boom with Hellboy saying Boom? I don't know. This is the first one I think with the with him actually saying it. But I thought, I thought it was at least the second one. Really? I don't know. I'm not 100 sure, but I don't know. I'll have to go back and check. <laughs> no, now. we're not counting that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're counting. This is all we're counting. <laughs> no, Jerry screams out. I like how he says, uh, "You got to let him smash it, Jerry. It's evil." That's what he's telling his his friend is telling him. He's like, it's all I've got. It's all I have left. And then this is a really awesome scene. We yeah, reveal cool. inside the crumbled statue is this heart. And it kind of like starts growing roots or something. Well, right? it's the, yeah. I mean, it grows the veins or whatever. Grow, they kind of branch out. Yeah. I was going to just branching out like vines yeah. and uh, the way that they just kind of branch out and take yeah, over yeah. everything. For sure. And they're so annoying to pick up. <laughs> and oh, right. You're dealing with uh, morning glories right now. Oh, they're so pretty, too. though. The flowers are so Oh, they're, they're beautiful. They are. They're just <laughs> everywhere. Sorry, anyway. Back to, this, back to this hideous heart. Yeah. I love how Hellboy reloads. He, like, the little thing says Pong as it comes out, and he puts another bullet in there. Oh, yeah. Awesome. And, I actually didn't notice that at first. Yeah. I really like those little, just all those the little. The Yeah. And I like how um, you can hear the the heart beating with the boom boom. Yeah. Oh boom, yeah, boom, yeah. Boom, boom. Really creepy. And Hellboy shoots the heart as Jerry pleads for him not to. That was something Hellboy <laughs> says. So he apologizes to Jerry. I'm ruined. I'll never paint again. Jerry says. Not the worst news I've ever heard. You should also stay away from sculpture, and you guys should get your rent money back. And the man says he'll be calling the landlord in the morning. He should have just torn the place down. At the very least, he's got to do something about that hole in the floor. <laughs> the end, question mark. Yeah, so I, I really love this uh, story. Um, all this is really great. I I really like this angle with the artist, too. That's a really fun angle to yeah. do, especially, you know, I guess, <laughs> I guess, like, just from... Mike Mignola's point of view, it's very Yeah. This is very interesting and funny. He kinda of, he kinda of pokes fun at himself a little bit, maybe, or I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. So some trivia for in the Chapel of Moloch. I really enjoyed at the that. time of at the time of this issue, Mignola had been writing mostly and not drawing Hellboy as much, and he said that he was worried he had forgotten how to draw a whole story. <laughs> so he eased himself back into it by setting most of this in the dark. Nice. Um, and it gave him an excuse to copy Goya. <laughs> all of He says that all of Jerry's paintings are based off prints from Goya's Los Caprichos series. This is a set of 80 prints in aquatint and etching created by the Spanish artist Goya in 1797 and 1798 and published as an album in 1799. The prints were an artistic experiment, a medium for Goya's condemnation of the universal follies and foolishness of the Spanish society in which he lived. Mignola said he invented the St. Hagen because everybody uses the Knights Templar and mm. he didn't want anyone to say that he was using his history wrong. Nice. When and, in doubt, just make some shit yeah, up. Yeah, in the sketchbook... That's also nice, too. Uh, yeah, in the sketchbook section, uh, Mignola says that the creature that crawls out of the hole was inspired by the horrible monkey in Lefanu's classic story, Green Tea. Mm. We also discuss Lefanu on our Conqueror Worm episode... Um, in that reference to Laura Karnstein. And Mignola doesn't sculpt, but he said he did do a primitive sculpture of Moloch so he could draw it from different angles. Cool. And he and Mignola says the stuff that Jerry says at the end of the story was way too easy to write. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed that story. That's, yeah, that that's a really good cool one. Angle. Next, we're going to talk about Macoma, or a tale told by a mummy in the New York City Explorers Club on August 16, 1993. This was published as a two-issue miniseries, February and March of 2006. And chronology-wise, it was the first story done by a different artist than Mignola. So we've been reading stuff in the omnibus version, and it's all kind of... They've put it in order, so we've already had Richard Corbin, and we've already had Gianni yeah. and all this stuff, but in terms of people just picking up Hellboy along the way, this was the first one where it was somebody other than Mignola. I like this thing. Oh, yeah, yeah there's that cool. there's that the little, um, uh, of the shrine of that lost city, I it's, think, yeah. yeah. The, most of the page is black, but it's just this little tiny sliver of a moon coming through these ruins and it's just really nice yeah we're looking at the omnibus version i have to check if that's in the it must be on the inside cover of the first issue yeah. i should have checked that before we started anyway we open on the new york city's explorers club which is a real place in new york the explorers club is an american-based international multidisciplinary professional society with the goal of promoting scientific exploration and field study the club was founded in New York in 1905 and has served as a meeting point for explorers and scientists worldwide. Hellboy talks to Professor Ali T. Coleman. He's got a little glow glass of wine in his hand. It's oh, just yeah. a really nice little setting. Very I couldn't, cozy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Yeah, I couldn't find a reference to this name, so it may just be a, a name that Mignola came up with. It's like they're at an art gallery, you know, opening. I like it. It's very cool. They're, it's yeah. like a little club, and they're all, you know, hanging out, talking about artifacts or whatever. It's very, it seems very cozy. I like it. Yeah, he's telling Hellboy about a dangerous expedition where they discovered a lost city, and then there was a huge sandstorm that they all almost died in, and afterwards the city was gone. At least you get some nice pictures, Hellboy says. And Coman tells him that, they got out with some pieces and the mummy, but not much else to show for all the work. You're alive, that's something, says Hellboy. And Coman says he loves Africa, and he tells Hellboy, you must understand, you've been there. Only once, Hellboy says, a long time ago. And we start getting kind of the, some of these mood shots also of the, of the mummy. So we know that Hellboy goes to Africa after the events of Conqueror Worm. And Hellboy had mentioned in that last conversation with Kate that he had been there once long before and liked it. And they kind of can't believe that. They're like, well, all the places he's been, he's only been to Africa once. It's yeah. Kinda, it is kind of yeah. weird. And they talk about uh, how Broom took Hellboy to Africa in 1947 over that damn hyena business. And they also talk about how cute he was back then and how he wandered off alone. Damn kids. Yeah. Hellboy says, I was lost out there for a week, but I don't remember. I like how they bring up the fact that Broom is missing. Um, and yeah. it gives you a little footnote that it's from when he's missing between when we first meet him on. Uh, yeah. Destruction. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of tying in the timeline. So at this point, he's up with the Cavendish expedition. And mid-sentence, the mummy begins to communicate with Hellboy. Hellboy, Africa knew you then. Hellboy, she knows you still. And we get this great flashback. We see little Hellboy, and we see this giant rhino. Yeah, the panel with the huge rhinoceros spirit. Yeah, and it's his, it's saying uh, yeah. yeah his his true name. Little baby Hellboy with little exclamation point. It's very striking. Yeah. Yeah. Geez, how do you forget something like that? And from off-panel, the Explorers Club guys, they call out, Hellboy, are you all right? And I just like, if you go back and forth between these two pages, 
it's like he's making the same face as a little boy. And then yeah. in the next panel where he says, geez, how do you forget something like that? Like he's reliving it's the it. Same face. Yeah. Like I like this uh, transition. It's very clever to just when the mummy's eyes burst into this green fire. That's it's very it's it's it gives you the um, it, it definitely helps start setting the mood. I don't know uh, what to say about it other yeah. than it's 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 very you really feel it like it's. Yeah. It's like in a movie. It, it, yeah, it really has a, a good transition, and it brings you into like almost kind of like this dream like quality. Yeah. Is that what you kind of yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. I've, I'm not feeling very articulate right now, but yes, I appreciate <laughs> that translation. <laughs> Come, the mummy says, a city of the dead, a burial place of kings, and the one who was more than a king, Makoma. And we get some really great panels of... Um, like Danielle was saying, all these ruins. And I think this is that lost city that they discovered, right? That they saw in the san- in, in the sandstorm. Yeah. They did say they bring brought a mummy back, so... Yeah. Yeah. And the mummy tells Makoma's story. How he was born able to speak and named himself Makoma, meaning he who is greatest and without fear. He spoke to wise men of secret workings of the earth and sky... But Makoma had not come to be a teacher, but to deliver men from evil powers. Makoma asked his mother to put him in a deep pool of water that was home to crocodiles. His mother weeped and wailed, but did it. And Hellboy kind of leans up on this statue, and he kind of starts, like, dozing off. You know, he kind of, like, leans his, rests his chin on his on his hand there. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. And it's not like I don't want to pay attention. Sometimes I'm just paying too much attention, and I go... Yeah. <laughs> is he dozing off within a trance? Right. Already, like he's already having a vision. So yeah, it's yeah. Kind of like yeah. a vision within a vision. It's yeah. Interesting. And now the tale cuts to the art style of Richard Corbin, and we've already seen him illustrate being human and the crooked man. After one day and one night in the pool, all the crocodiles were dead, and Makoma came out of that pool and holding in his hand an iron hammer. And we kind of see that it's Hellboy. At least, um, I guess Hellboy is seeing himself in the in in the story. Makoma meets with the wise men, and they tell him how they fear for their people, and how they hear the sounds of giants. And Makoma's like, right, which we've already, we've seen Hellboy do that also. The next day, an old woman approaches Makoma and gives him a bag. Take this and fill it with the bones of your enemies. She says, carry it with you and return it to me when we meet again at the ending of the world. And Makoma walks off. He walks for days, weeks, years. And I love all these um, shots of Africa and all the animals. Makoma comes across Chi Eswa Mapiri, builder of mountains. The giant is enraged to hear Makoma's name, knowing its meaning, and they fight. And I really love the action beats that Corbin does here. There's a there's kind of a lot of comedy to it as well. And then Makoma discovers a curious thing. The giant asks for mercy, and he's grown small. So Makoma takes him in the bag alive, and the giant is grateful, calling him Makoma the Merciful. And he's like, quiet back there. Makoma then comes across Chi Dubala Taka, digger of riverbeds, and the same thing happens. They fight. Makoma grants the giant mercy and throws him in the bag. I love the way uh, the artist is depicting all the different giants. Um, they're all they've all got their own little thing, and they yeah. all have their own personality. And builder of mountains and yeah. the digger of rivers. Yeah, all Mac- the different designs are very all the different designs are very distinct and they're very apropos. 
I really, I really just like the, they're very creative. Yeah, you know, I'm really enjoying that. Makoma comes across Chi Guisa Miti, who is a giant elephant, and he also goes in the bag. And I kind of like there's like a recurring theme of them all holding their heads, like yeah. they're all getting beat in the head and like, asking for mercy. How many of you guys are going to fit in there? Maybe one more. And Hellboy sees um, this fish giant. This one might be Chin Dibao Mao Guri, who lived in the river in the original myth. In the original myth, he looks more like a man with a long mustache than a fish. So I don't know if this is the same. They don't say what his name is. I like this design, too. They're all really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And they have a great fight. The giant fish is slippery as an eel. So the tiny, the defeated tiny giants, they tell Makoma to use the bag. And I love the imagery as he like puts it over his head and he's like, yeah, that works. And he starts hitting him over the head like, like that. Like bonk, 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 bonk. All the, all the uh, little giants, the little giants, all yeah. the, you know. <laughs> tiny ones, yeah, yeah, they've all the shrunk The tiny down. giants are very firmly on his side and like rooting for him the whole time it's really cute yeah it is and they all kind of jump out of the way and stuff like that it's it's really adorable i like that little monkey with the question mark over its head oh yeah he sees them all because they're all saying makoma's great and he's like quiet and that monkey's like what What the the heck is going going on on? Um, this, you know, I yeah. love this. Well, and, uh, but before I like um, after he defeats the fish one, and they're all dancing. Yeah, they're oh, all, yeah. and he's like, "Quit that!" And back in the bag, I, I love how they're. Uh, yeah, but um, Makoma starts walking across this uh, burned landscape, and he meets this fire demon. The fire monster design rules. Yeah. Yeah. And this may be a reference to Chi Idea Moto, the flame spirit from the original myth. The tiny giants tell Makoma to run away, and he tells them to be quiet. When he tells them to be quiet, the flame demon shoots a huge plume of fire, blasting Makoma back and causing him to drop his sack. They fight, and Makoma conquers the demon. And when he does, the demon tells Makoma, finish me, beat me with your hammer, take the strength as you've taken it from those others. Yes, take it. And we get this vision of a giant Makoma burning the jungle animals in landscape. And this is just a really cool, like, image that it cuts to where he's just giant, you know? And he's just, like, it looks like fire is coming from all of his footsteps and everything. Yeah. But then Makoma snaps out of it. And Well, well before he does that, like, how they call him, like, Anun M... Oh, Anung M. Esh, Anung Unrama. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And, um... Then he snaps out of it. Yeah, then Makoma snaps out of it, and he continues to fight the flame demon, ultimately putting his hand down his throat and pulling out this little flame lizard. A little salamander. Yeah, and that's like the origin origin of his power. And we've seen a similar... Remember on the Christmas Underground, she had that ring, and it was like a little flame lizard or something? Yeah, kind of reminded me of that. Salamander, I'm sorry. What's the difference between a lizard and a salamander, guys? Uh, Let me give it a goose. (laughs) I was going to say Wikipedia knows. (laughs) The tiny giants tell Makoma, please, master, you will not make us share our bag with that. Makoma says, don't worry, I'll put this guy someplace special. And he makes like a basket out of twigs or something, right? And he carries it outside the bag. And those tiny giants, they continue to sing. And he's like, quiet. And uh, Makoma continues to travel. He comes across a city and he meets a man. And the man tells Makoma he has made it to paradise. He says to listen to the singing. Their song promises peace, oblivion. 
And these tiny giants, again, they tell Makoma to look more closely. Oh, Makoma says, as he he kind of sees that the singing is actually the buzzing of 10,000 insects in the city of corpses. And I love that... Um, that's a really creepy kind of reveal there with yeah, the, yeah. you know, yeah. like he, the, it, it's kind of like, um, like glamour, or like a mirage yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. Geez, no thanks, pal. And the man is disappointed that he can't make Makoma his slave. So he unleashes these giant sand devils on Makoma and he fights them for a hundred days. And I love this fight. Um, I, I love all this as he's fighting the, the sand demon. So he fights him for about, what did I figure out here? Just over three months. Until the man finally gets bored with it, he asks Makoma for his bag. And Makoma does like a good fake out there. He pretends he doesn't care about the bag, but he only cares about the fire demon in the twig basket. And then the man asks for that. And when he opens it, he looses the fire demon and ruins his city of corpses and all his evil works. Nice. Also, I do like the uh, design of these sand demons. They almost got like an ant-like quality. Almost. Like yeah. A, like a, 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 you're gonna hate me for saying this. Almost like an ant man. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they are like ant men. Yeah, yeah, they they are. Just, but I mean, just the way that they look, and like you know, you can see like the little like yeah. joints like and the antennas, and yeah. Yeah, they look great. But yeah, no, I also love how he faked him out with the bag switch. <laughs> Yeah, and um, as he's walking off, you see like that uh, salamander. It's like a, it's almost like a snake or something, and it's like wrapped itself around him, yeah. around the man as it's burning everything. Makoma walks on days, months, years, until even his gray strength ran out, and Makoma collapses amongst all these bones of all the animals of Africa. When he wakes, he hears the old woman who gave him the bag in the beginning of the story. She tells Makoma that it is the end of the world now, and she gives him a drink and tells him to be glad. After he drinks it, he does feel better, and the old woman now looks young. She tells Makoma to recover his strength and sleep. That night, Makoma was visited in his dreams by the spirit of the great chiefs of Africa. Then the spirit of Africa herself, which is that uh, giant rhino that little Hellboy saw, and the great chiefs of Africa... That makes me think of that dream that Hellboy had in the Third Wish. Remember where he he um, yeah. told him to rest, and then he had a dream of of these lions in Africa as well. In the morning, Makoma is amazed to see a great feast. He drools and eats until no scrap of food or drop of wine remained. Makoma says he needed that. Where did it come from? And the woman says he has eaten his friends, the tiny giants from the bag. Horrible. Oh, no. Horrible. <laughs> Terrible. And his face, too. He's so kind of like um, upset, distraught af after Who learning that. Be upset? That's yeah. upsetting. It's very upsetting. And he walks over to the bag. He's just like, ah, no. You know, as he looks in there and sees all the bones. And when he looks in the bag, he sees a boy. Uh, Makoma's crying, and he asks who the boy is. He is the life you gave back to the world. Years ago, he was possessed by a fire demon. You reached down his throat and took the demon out. You saved him. He will go on and live long after we are gone. And the woman's old again, too. So she was young, and, and now, after this uh, reveal, she's old again. And we get another shot of this boy in the bag, and it's just a very affecting image, you know? The way that he's kind of like looking at Hellboy, 
Um, there's just, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of sympathy there when you kind of look at that. She tells him that his friends were happy to give the last of themselves so Makoma would have enough strength to end well. The old woman pledges peace to Makoma and he leaves to meet his doom at the end of the world. And he walks off. He's like, all right, come on. And there's the dragon, a giant seven-headed dragon. I am the ruin of all things that live, land, sea, and all flesh. Who dares to face me? And he tells them, Makoma. And they fight. And we get right hand of doom, boom, number 13. And we also get uh, number 14 as well. Number 14 is a really awesome one as he smashes them over the, over the top. They're pretty evenly matched. And they exhaust each other and fall together. And I just really like all these shots of them fighting. And Corbin does a really good job with this giant seven-headed monster. I, I love that. Finally, Makoma says as he falls, There is a boom, and we reveal a man with a giant stone hammer. Now it's done. I really like that kind of reveal. Like, you know, uh, the Makoma looking like Hellboy falls, and then the smoke, and as the smoke clears, it turns out it's not Hellboy. It's just right. some guy holding a hammer. I mean, not that he's just some guy, but I just like... right. And then it goes back to like when Hellboy was kind of dozing off at the very beginning of the story. He's probably seen it as him. He's seen himself as the, uh, yeah. as the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Makoma dies and the bag in the witch's house opened and brought forth all of Africa. And lastly, out of that bag, myself. So this is kind of revealing the identity of the mummy. The mummy was that boy. The story fades to black and back to green as Mignola returns to these pencils again. The mummy tells Hellboy that he found Makoma's bones and hammer and built this monument and tomb and went on to live 500 years to have wives and children, but always in the shadow of his life. And back in the Explorers Club, now it's done. Now his story is told, and I pray the wind will carry my dust. And the mummy just disintegrates in front of Hellboy. And he's just like, son of a... He like looks around, he exclaims, and Professor Coleman's like, Hellboy, what the hell did you do to my mummy? And Hellboy just, he just looks so upset at that, you know, just kind of getting. The very, <laughs> the very next thing we see is that Hellboy was banned for life from the New York City Explorers <laughs> Club. Poor Hellboy. Oh. And Coleman never found the lost city in Africa again. And as we know, Trevor Broom did survive Cavendish, but was killed in his Brooklyn home by a frog monster. The end. And we cut to this picture of young Hellboy yeah. and Broom on their trip to Tanzania, Africa, 1947. Really cool. What a beautiful way to end that little story. I was going to say, like, looking at Broom there, he's kind of reminding me of what Johnny Depp looks like right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Broom's still looking better. Yeah. <laughs> so, some trivia from Macoma. This story is from the Orange Fairy Book by Andrew Lang and illustrated by H.J. Ford in 1906. In the story, the hammer is called Nuendo, and every time he beats one of the giants, they shrink, and he puts them in the sack, and he gains their power. Makoma does become friends with all the giants, but leaves them to go alone and fight Sakatrina, a five-headed giant whose legs are as big as mountains, and they fight until they fall together. In the morning when they awake, Molumo, the great spirit, was standing by them, and he said, Ye are heroes so great that no man may come against you. Therefore, ye will leave the world and take up your home with me in the clouds. And then they became invisible to the people of Earth and were seen no more. So that's the original M Macoma myth. Cool. 
cool. Mignola said that he fell in love with Andrew Lang's story and he wanted to do a straight adaptation, but he couldn't ignore the comparisons with Hellboy and with what Mignola planned to do with Hellboy. He says the thing wanted to be a Hellboy story. A few years later, Mignola is emailing Richard Corbin and he worked up the nerve to ask him to draw a Hellboy story. Mignola added the singing corpses and the Ant-Men um, when Corbin agreed because he wanted to see him draw that. So he was like, oh, since he did it, now I'm going to yeah. add these other things that I want him to draw too. Mignola developed a frame story to give himself something to do. Mignola says that he's been in awe of Corbin and recommends his work on Den, Mutant World, Bloodstar, Sinbad, and the House of the Borderland. Cool. Wait, what was that first one? Den. Isn't that the story from um, Heavy Metal? Oh, I don't know. Is that? Yeah. I think so. Oh, that might. Yeah, that. Yeah, that would make sense because Richard Corbin has done heavy metal. Because I've, I've seen like a, a sequel to that story um, in the heavy metal magazine years, yeah. And years ago. Yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. So yeah, yeah. So I I really like this story. When when I first read this story, this was one where I really had to. It really kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. There's all these, um, like the old woman. She says. That he's going to come back. She'll meet him again at the end of the world. That's kind of the same thing that Hecate right. says to Hellboy. Yeah. Right. It's and a lot um, of parallels. It's really yeah. Cool. All that stuff. And then the the seven headed dragon. And it kind of made me think like, is this how Hellboy is going to end? Like, is this is Mignola basically giving us uh he's giving us like an outline of how things are going to play out in the future. I was just taking it more as just it's it's an uh, it's interesting to place him within these myths yeah in an imagination kind of a role yeah and i i i I appreciated the parallels but i um you know obviously you know mike mignola is gonna be doing whatever he is he's gonna be doing right right but i did think it was interesting that um the parallels there you know like he's he does a lot of myths and he does a lot of Mm -hmm. from various cultures and things like that and lots of folklore and it's uh it's always cool to see hellboy um inserted in there but it's such a weird story that takes place outside of time almost yeah it it has to be in that format of like it was all a dream or something yeah so i don't know i i I guess i took it more as a this is the story that was the pre-story before yeah uh kind of like this is a story of how the Anju jihad ended up Mm -hmm. in their capsule at the very very end so i mean it's probably not the whole complete story because, you know, he was falling asleep there. Um, <laughs> but I, I kind of took it as something like that, that it was like the story before the story. And I mean, it kind of gives you like uh, how we've seen that story yeah. where he. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. Yeah. It's just it, 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 it goes back for me. It goes back to like um, arch- for me. For me, it goes back to archetypes. It's 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 all about archetypes. And I think that, you know, maybe yeah. he saw. In that story, he was like, "Oh, this kind of reminds me of the guy that mm-hmm. I've got going right now." That's, yeah. you know, I don't know. Like I I just have to be like, "What does it mean? Yeah. What does this mean? How do I interpret this to tie into everything else?" Yeah, I tend to sort of take things at face value. I guess. <laughs> and uh, just lastly, I want to point out this: um, at least in the omnibus version, there's a Mignola pinup of the Macoma story, and oh, you yeah. kind of see him. He gets to draw the giants and the flame salamander and all that. It, it looks really great. <laughs> So, yeah, this is one of my favorites. I, I love the Macoma story. And um, I'd be interested to read what our listeners think about this story and um, what does it mean? Does it mean anything? Is it just is it just interesting parallels or does it have a grander, you know, or is it going to pay off in, in the Hellboy destiny or 
does it pay off in the future? So anyway, l- let me know what you think about that. Those were some good ones. I, yeah. would, I would like to ask, yeah. actually, Mike Mignola about the artist one. About all the artists. Oh, the, in the, the Chapel of Moloch, yeah. yeah. in the yeah. story. I really like that one, too. I, it, what? So how did that, coming back to that one, how did, because you're an artist, I mean, how did you feel about that? <laughs> it was great. It was, it was hilarious. No, I, I loved it. And I also kind of like how they kind of poke fun a little bit at the whole art world. Um, I love all the shop talk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It's just great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Great episode, everybody. So now Aubrey's going to say all the things. So tell us your thoughts on the ghoul in the Chapel of Moloch and Macoma. You can send us your feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. Join the book club on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. Next time on the Hellboy Book Club, we'll be discussing Double Feature of Evil and The Sleeping in the Dead. So pull out your back issues, trades, library editions, omnibus, download the digitals, and join us along for next time. You can find the podcast on Podbean and Apple iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. And... Um, you can also check us out on uh, mignolaverse.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Danielle. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, hole in one, baby. <laughs> <laughs>